Hello, my name's David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. Today, as a summer break, we're going to go back to the beginning, to the very first interview we recorded for Talking Politics four years ago, with Yuval Noah Harari, talking about his book, Homo Deus, and I'll be reflecting on what difference four years has made to the arguments he gave us then. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, Europe's leading magazine of books and ideas, where you can read elegant and expansive essays on every subject imaginable, from Amir Srinivasan on pronouns to James Meek on the WHO, from Pankaj Mishra on Anglo-America to Catherine Rundell on the Greenland Shark. Get 12 issues in print and online, that's half a year of the LRB, for just £12, with the URL lrb.me slash talk. That's lrb.me slash talk. We recorded this interview with Yuval Harari when he was in Cambridge to promote Homo Deus. He was giving a talk here. We recorded it not in our usual space, but in a college room, an oak panelled room with portraits of dead white men on the walls. It was after Brexit. This is September 2016. But it was before the election of Donald Trump. Trump was the Republican nominee, but he was by no means at that point certain to win the presidency, though when you listen to this interview, it is striking that we both seem to somehow assume that maybe he is going to win. Certainly, we seem to talk about Trump rather than Clinton, as though Trump were the future. A lot of what Yuval Harari says in this interview still seems to me to be very relevant now in 2020. Some of it is pretty prescient. Some of it may be less so. It may even be that after four years, some of these arguments have dated a bit. I'm going to say a little bit about that at the end. We started our conversation with a question about the fundamental distinction that he makes in his book Homo Deus, the distinction between intelligence and consciousness. In human beings and other animals, consciousness and intelligence go together to such an extent that many people think about them as the same thing. But they're actually quite different. Uh, Intelligence basically is the ability to solve problems, whereas consciousness is the ability to feel things, to have feelings, emotions, uh, subjective experiences. Now, in the case of humans, we use our feelings in order to solve problems. Our intelligence, to a large extent, is emotional intelligence. But it doesn't have to be like that. And in the case of computers and artificial intelligence, what we are seeing is amazing progress as far as intelligence goes without any progress whatsoever in consciousness. If you think about the development of computers since the 1940s and 1950s, so there has been immense development in intelligence, but exactly zero development in consciousness. The first computers in the 1940s had absolutely no consciousness, And the most advanced computers today have also no consciousness whatsoever. They can beat you at chess or the game of Go or drive a car or whatever, but they don't feel any joy, any fear, any hope. What this means is that whereas the evolution of organic beings 
relied on this coupling of consciousness and intelligence, now we are seeing an evolution of a very different kind of entities, highly intelligent but non-conscious artificial intelligence algorithms. And the big question this poses is what is really more important more important for the economic system, for the political system, for the military. What do they need? Do they need consciousness or intelligence? Until today, this was a theoretical question uh, that maybe interested some philosophers, but it had no practical implications. Now it is becoming a practical question. And the frightening thing to realize is that for the system, for the economic and military system, Consciousness is irrelevant. They just need intelligence. The army needs a system that is able to identify terrorists and kill them. The economy needs a taxi that can take you from point A to point B as efficiently and as cheaply as possible if it can do it without any feelings very well. So what does that mean for us then, the people who are still locked together with intelligence and consciousness coupled? Because one of the claims you make in your book is that one of these things that these machines can know about us intelligently, but without any feeling, they don't care, is about our own consciousness. They can know things about our desires, our wants, from our habits. Mm. So what is the implication of having machines that are super intelligent, but without feelings, for people who have feelings? Well, there are two potential implications. First of all, that if these machines indeed become more intelligent than us, at least in particular fields, they will push humans out of the job market, and we might see in the 21st century the creation of a huge new class, uh, the useless class. Billions of people devoid of any economic uh, usefulness and therefore also devoid of political importance. Just as the Industrial Revolution in the 19th century created the urban working class, the proletariat, and much of the social and political history of the 19th and 20th century revolved around this class, so the new important class of the 21st century may be the useless class. This is the, the, the first implication. The second implication is that institutions or uh, mechanisms like democratic elections and free market economics might become obsolete once you have an external algorithm that understands you and your feelings and your desires better than you understand yourself. In humanist politics and economics, the feelings of the individuals are the highest authority. There is nothing beyond that. The voter knows best, the customer is always right. But if the Amazon algorithm knows my feelings better than me, then it becomes an authority higher than the voter, higher than the uh, customer. If you think about the U.S. elections, coming U.S. elections in November, I don't know if it's happening in practice, but theoretically, Facebook has the data to decide the elections. I mean, such elections are usually decided by the swing voters, and Facebook, I think, if it wants, can know who are the 50,000 voters that still haven't made up their mind whether they want to vote Republican or Democrat or, I don't know, stay at home. And also, Facebook, in principle, has the data to know what Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton need to say or to do in order to swing those votes in their favor. Even more interestingly, at present in democratic elections, 
we privilege the feelings of the voters on a particular day, the day of elections. And very often people have certain political views for maybe three and a half years. And then in the few weeks before the elections, all kinds of scandals and all kinds of spin doctors who create political magic, they swing the opinions of enough individuals in order to decide the elections. And this is a bit unfair because we ignore the feelings, the desires, the emotions of the past three and a half years. Now, if you allow Google or Facebook to vote for me, they know who I am and what I want and what my emotions were for the entire four years since the last elections. So there is no need to privilege my opinions and emotions on the last few, few days before the election. It's true. One of the things that struck me for a while now is how weird it is that we're still so reliant on polls and opinion polling. And we use this incredibly crude mechanism, which is we ask people how they think they're going to vote. (laughs) Facebook knows better how they're going to vote than they do. So why do we ask them? And and polls have been, the polling industry has not made progress in the last 25 years. During the age of the digital revolution, polling has gone backwards. And it's, we are attached to the idea that the individual is autonomous, not just in feeling and choice, but in knowledge. So the individual knows what the individual prefers. Mm -hmm. And the implication of what you say is that actually we already have machines that know better than we do what it is that we prefer. Mm -hmm. And this has implications not just obviously for politics, it has implications for everything else. Let's come back a bit at the end to to questions about contemporary politics now, because also there's obviously a question about timeframes here. I mean, I don't think the election in November is going to be settled this way, but... (laughs) <laughs> 10, 20 years, who knows? But one of the things you say in your book, in a broader perspective, is that in the 20th century, the fear was one of the political fears, the political dystopia was sort of big brother politics. The idea of these all-powerful states, they may not be all-knowing, they don't have all the knowledge, although there's sometimes a suggestion that they do, but they have the power. But now what we're seeing is a kind of, with this uncoupling, a fracturing of individuals. So it's not that individuals are confronting something that's bigger than them, Mm -hmm. but sort of modelled on the individualistic democratic principle, but they're confronting something that's going to fragment them. Mm. So how does that work politically? I mean, your book has so many fascinating claims, and a lot of them have political Mm -hmm. implications. What does it mean to say that individuals are not going to be confronted by more powerful states, but by states that are going to break them up? Mm. I think the transition we are seeing is from individuals to individuals. The idea of the individual, which really goes back to the Christian mythology about the soul, the eternal soul, is that um, in essence you have some inner core which is indivisible. It's the soul, the spirit, the human spark. It's your true authentic self. And your task as an individual, whenever you confront an important choice in life, whether it's about your career, your love life, or your political opinion, is to somehow get away from all the outside noise, from what you see on television, from all the spin doctors, from the neighbors, everything, and get in touch with your true authentic self and just follow your heart, listen to yourself. This is like the big slogan of of humanism. This assumes that there is such a thing as an individual, as an indivisible core within yourself, which is authentic. This is 18th century mythology. I mean, if you listen to present-day biologists, they will tell you there is no such thing as an indivisible core, which is your authentic self. In truth, 
humans are individuals, which means they are a collection of biochemical mechanisms. And if you understand these different mechanisms and how they interact, that's it. There is nothing beyond these mechanisms, which is the real, true essence. Now, in the 20th century, nobody could understand these inner mechanisms. Even if the KGB followed you around everywhere and recorded everything you do, they did not have the biological knowledge and they did not have the computing power necessary to process all the data. So the humanist mythology still made sense in practice because nobody understood you. Nobody understood your feelings. But in the 21st century, the political and economic systems, the data giants like Facebook, like Google, like Amazon, they have or they are gaining the biological knowledge and the computing power necessary to understand these inner mechanisms. And I've just recently seen a Disney film, uh, Inside Out. Have you seen it? Yeah. <laughs> and I said, this is it. If Disney abandons the humanist mythology, this is it. I mean, for decades, Disney has been selling kids all over the world and adults this mythology that you are an individual self and you just have to listen to yourself and follow your heart and everything will be perfect. And then you watch Inside Out and you have this girl, Riley, the hero, and she's just a robot which is managed by internal biochemical mechanisms which in the film they are personified as joy and sadness and, and, and they walk around the brain and they see how dreams are produced and how emotions are produced and there is no inner core. There is no self, there is no free will, it's just the interaction of various biochemical mechanisms, and this is now what Disney is telling kids. And yet, in that film, and also with Google and Facebook, they still pay tribute to the idea of the inner core that makes us who we are. Even in that film, the girl at the end, we're meant to believe that she has an identity, and Facebook and Google still play on our idea that we are special individuals, partly to mm. sell us stuff. But Disney, so I, my memory of that film is that it was both very sentimental in a kind of classic humanist way and very sinister. You know, it was, but it was the two things, and we're at this kind of crossroads moment. We haven't abandoned humanism. Mm. Um, humanism is just another vehicle for Facebook and Google. And in some ways, the, the sort of rhetoric of, and of states as well democratic states is that you the individual still are the essence it's just we have these new mechanisms which will help you achieve it more efficiently faster mm -hmm. better and so on we haven't abandoned humanism it's just under this huge pressure technically and the rhetoric is still the rhetoric of liberal democratic individualism yeah the rhetoric is still there it takes a very long time for mythology to disappear uh, we are in a transition period and it's absolutely true that they that they keep something very essential from the humanist mythology, which is saying to people, you're special. The big brother Orwellian fear of the 20th century that you are not special, everybody is part of this huge production line, everybody's just a cog in the machine. No, definitely not. Everybody is special. And in order to understand your speciality, we need to understand the inner workings of your body and brain. And then we can... Um, tailor product just for you. Like you have this now, this idea in economics of the long tail, that instead of the 20th century when everybody wears the same clothes and drives the same car, we can now produce the perfect car just for you. 
and we can now produce the clothes just for you because we understand you as a special entity different from all the other humans in the world, but not because you're individual, but precisely because you are an assemblage of biochemical mechanisms that we monitor and we can understand. And the flip side is that um, discrimination is also going to be tailor-made just for you. In the 20th century, we discriminated groups. In the 21st century, we are going to discriminate particular people. I mean, we don't hire you to the job, not because you're gay and not because you're black and not because you're Muslims, because you're you. We know your DNA and we know your hormonal system and we don't like it. And you cannot ally yourself with other people in your group to protest against discrimination because there are no other people in that group. It's just you that we don't want. The flip side to the long tail is the winner-take-all economy. And, and the two things are going along side by side. So yes, books that used to sell no copies at all can now sell 5 or 10, 20 <laughs> copies. But then a few Harry Potter-style books sell to everyone in the world. And yes, Google and Facebook can tailor products that suit us as individuals. But Google and Facebook themselves are something close to a monopoly. Hmm. And so there is that, that, that other thing that's going on here, which is a kind of super elite, a very small group of people or of companies or of institutions that seem to have enormous amounts of power in this long tail world where everyone has a little bit of what suits them. Mm -hmm. A few people seem to have hoovered up all of the big stuff, money and power. So is, is it that kind of long-tail future that the middle is squeezed? Mm. There's lots of tailored personal politics and economics and so on, but there's also a huge concentration of power and wealth at the top. I mean, is that the future that this technology leads towards? It's certainly a very distinct possibility. I mean, we can't, I mean, technology is not deterministic. It can still go in different ways. The same way that in the 19th century, the Industrial Revolution produced new revolutionary technologies that could produce very different types of societies. With trains and internal combustion engines and electricity, you can build a communist dictatorship or a fascist regime or a liberal democracy. The trains and the electricity, they don't have an opinion what you're going to do with them. So it's the same with this new information technology and biotechnology. But there is a very big danger of a concentration of a lot of power in very few hands. If you think about, again, a concrete example, that like the uh, transportation market. So today you have thousands and thousands of taxi drivers and bus drivers and tra truck drivers. Each of them controls a small share of the transportation market, which also gives them political power because they can, for example, unionize and go on strike and uh, if something happens that they don't like. Now, fast forward 30 years, all the vehicles on the road are um, controlled by algorithms, basically by a single algorithm that connects all the different vehicles one to the other. The great promise of self-driving vehicles is not just that the vehicle individually is uh, driving safer and more cheaply than human beings, but that for the first time you can connect all the vehicles on the road one to the other, and then there are no more accidents and, 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 things, and traffic jams and things like that. But the downside 
is that the entire transport market is now being controlled by a single algorithm, which is being owned by a single corporation, which is owned by a handful of, of billionaires. So all the economic and political clout that originally was divided between thousands and thousands of taxi drivers and bus drivers and so forth, it now belongs to five billionaires. You're right, of course, technology doesn't determine the future that we're going to have. But where's the resistance to this coming from, do you think? Or where is it going to come from? And one version of this, let's bring it back to Donald Trump. I don't think it's going to come from him. But unquestionably, this is a peculiar political moment in that people are very angry. Um, There are these waves of populist anger and they produce these peculiar results like Brexit and so on. Mm -hmm. No one quite is certain what it is that it signifies. And one of the puzzles here is that people are often told, particularly in the West, that they are longer-lived, better off, healthier, better provided for, better entertained than they have ever been. But they're also angrier in some respects, these supposedly happy people. Is it possible, when I was reading your book, I really felt this quite strongly, that we're just at the beginning of this point, that there is human pushback against this. People aren't stupid, and though no one knows what the future holds, they have a feeling that it doesn't include them. Um, not just in employment terms, I mean, partly in employment terms, partly because of inequality mm-hmm. and the way that wages have stagnated, but also a broader sense that they are, like, they're not cogs in the machine, they're all being entertained and treated very nicely, mm-hmm. but they are somehow being written out of the future. Mm. Definitely, I think that the anger that drove at least some voters to, to vote for Brexit or driving people in America to vote for Trump is completely justified. They are accurate in sensing that power is shifting away from them. They are no longer in control of their own future. I think they are wrong in their analysis of where the power has shifted to. If voters in the UK think that they are losing power because power is shifting to Brussels, they are wrong. And if voters in the USA think that power is shifting to the establishment, whatever that is, they are wrong. Nobody really knows exactly where the power is shifting. uh, And this is part of the problem. I think what we are seeing now is that the acceleration of change in the world, resulting from the immense amounts of data and the accelerating pace of data processing, causes the traditional political institutions that we've inherited from the 20th century to become irrelevant. Nobody really knows where we are heading to. And the amazing thing is that if in the 20th century politics was a battle between grand visions of the future, some terrible visions, but still even Hitler and Stalin, they had these huge visions about where humanity is heading towards, and politics was the battle between the communist vision of the future, the fascist vision, the liberal vision. Now you look at politics, nobody has any vision about the future of humanity. Governments are becoming managers. They manage the day-to-day business of the country, that salaries are paid, that roads are being paved, whatever, but they have no vision for where we're going to be in 20 or 30 years, the only place you, you find people who have some kind of serious vision about the future is in the private sector in places like Silicon Valley. You want to hear visions about the future, you don't go to the White House, you don't go to the Kremlin, you go to Google and Facebook and Apple. 
And I think ordinary voters are, are, are sensing it correctly that not only they personally, but the entire political mechanism that was relatively so successful, in, at least in the late 20th century, is being uh, rendered irrelevant. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Do you think that there's a difference, though, given what you say, between the way that this kind of managerial politics is being done in somewhere like China, the non-democratic version, and the democratic version? In that the non-democratic version is still... In the Chinese case, it's still a bet on the state, basically, and the possibility that with enough political will and manpower, actually, mm-hmm. human power, it is possible to channel some of these forces politically. Whereas in the West, I think you're right, there's a sense that people have that politicians have sort of given up on that mm-hmm. and that they're, they're just going to ride the wave. Yeah. Do you have, I mean, I don't know how you feel about China. But do you have any sense that there's a real difference there or actually will these two converge in the next 20, 30 years? I think there is a difference. In the West, the dominant ideology is neoliberalism, which basically tells politicians, it's good that you're giving up on the future. It's not your job. Your job is really just to manage the the simple day-to-day stuff. The really important decisions about the future of humanity will be taken and should be taken by market forces. So the fact that you don't understand what is happening and that you don't have any vision for the future, this is excellent, wonderful, good for you and good for us. Um, In China, I think this is the one place where you see more serious thinking about the future. It's not true of all authoritarian regimes. I mean, you don't see it in a place like Russia. I mean, Putin's vision for the future, I mean, you compare Putin with Lenin, it's really amazing. I mean, Lenin has this... Lenin is relying on technology like steam engines and typewriters, and he has this grand vision for the future of humankind. And Putin has far more sophisticated technology than Lenin, but his vision is far, far more limited. It seems to be like going back to the Tsarist empire. So you don't see uh, these kinds of vision for the future in all authoritarian regimes, but in China you do get the sense that because of the... The Communist Party has the feeling that it's going to be around for the foreseeable future for decades and generations, then it can think long-term. And it can think long-term not only about the mere survival of the regime, like in North Korea, but it can think in long-term about where it wants China and, and the world as a whole to be in 20 or 30 years. The big problem with China is because everything is so centralized and this vision is the product of a centralized data processing system, if they get it wrong, then they really get it wrong. 
I mean, you don't have the checks and balances that are provided in the West by the different branches of government and by the free market and, and so forth. So one last question. I read your book. I wrote about it. I, I loved it. But I was having to write about other things as well. So I studied politics for a living and mm-hmm. I had to write something about Jeremy Corbyn and I had to write something about Brexit and so on. And reading your book made that really hard because I didn't really care. <laughs> and there's, there's a, and I, I wrote in my review, your book has this kind of vertiginous quality, which I loved, mm-hmm. this feeling that you're sort of standing on the edge of a cliff. It's thrilling. Um, and as you say, actually thinking about the next 80 years, it's almost impossible for any of us to imagine what the world's going to be like. And yet here we are in this moment of political turmoil, caring about will Jeremy Corbyn be re-elected leader of the Labour Party, even will Donald Trump be? Mm-hmm. So do you share, I mean, when you were writing it, is it, I don't know, I haven't spoken to other people who've read it yet, but I imagine other people will have this feeling too, that it's sort of destabilising, mm. thinking about the world and the way you describe it. And it's sometimes kind of hard to get back in, mm-hmm. but we're going to have to get back in. I mean, if we're going to choose the future that we want in some sense, it will be through politics. Mm. But there is this temptation just to kind of feel we're just on this wave <laughs> and let's just ride it. <laughs> it's too exhausting. Well, when I wrote Homo Deus, when I wrote the book, I mean, the idea was to not to make people feel, oh, we, there, is, there is nothing we can do about it and we can even forget about normal politics because it doesn't matter. I mean, really just the opposite, that we need to bring these big issues into the political sphere, into the political debate, because we still have agency. Uh, we can still influence the direction these developments are taking. As I said, technology is never deterministic. I mean, you can't just stop it, but you can influence the direction that it is taken. And I'm very worried that so far there has been extremely little interest and discussion in, in politics about these issues like artificial intelligence or like biotechnology. You look at the election campaign in the US and nobody's talking about it. I mean, they talk about the old stuff like, you know, Muslim immigration, gay marriage, walls, uh, uh, but, uh, you know, artificial intelligence. And I don't suspect that Donald Trump has these views about AI, which he keeps to himself because he keeps nothing to himself. So if he doesn't speak about AI, it means it, it really hasn't registered on his radar and on the radar of most voters. And I think that Maybe the the model is what happened, at least to some extent, with global warming, which started in the you know the 1970s and 1980s as in the fringes of the academic and scientific community, people warning, look, this is going to happen, this is real, this is going to change our lives and the lives of our children much more than many traditional political issues. And even though it's still not like the most important political uh, issue today, it's it's managed to become a part of the political agenda. And I hope something like that will happen soon enough with issues like artificial intelligence and biotechnology. But it's the soon enough question that's the real question. Global warming is not a completely sort of reassuring example and this is happening yeah. faster than that. Mm. I mean, it's completely clear this is, and this is exponential in ways that there are going to be really dramatic shifts. And self-driving cars is one example of this, mm-hmm. that, that are suddenly just going to become ubiquitous. Um, 30, 40 years, if that's the model, so it started in the 70s and 80s, so even, yeah, 20, the, even the world of 2050 is quite hard to imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean... Uh, 
I have a fear that the um, uh, political institutions that we now have that we, and we, we've inherited from the 20th century are just not going to change fast enough in order to confront these issues, which means that the big decisions will be taken either by nobody, by market forces, or they will be taken by a very small group of individuals in places like Silicon Valley whom nobody voted for and they represent nobody and they don't really have a kind of political commitment of the kind you even find in the Communist Party in China or in, with people like Putin or like Erdogan. Um, so far, I must say that most of the decisions taken by the geeks in Silicon Valley has proven themselves to be quite good. I mean, <laughs> we could have done much, much worse. But still, it's, it's dangerous to put the future, not really only of humanity, it's really the future of life. I mean, the rise of artificial intelligence is going to change things not on the historical level, but really on the biological level. After four billion years of evolution of organic beings, for the first time, life is about to break out into the inorganic realm and we'll start seeing inorganic life forms. And the people taking the decisions about it, you know, a bunch of engineers in, in Silicon Valley. So this is a frightening thought. One thing that has definitely changed in the four years since we recorded that interview is that Yuval Harari has become a lot more famous. He was pretty famous back then. Sapiens, his first book, was already an international bestseller. Homo Deus was about to become not quite as big a book, but a book with just as big an impact. But in the four years since, he has turned into a global intellectual superstar and a kind of one-person industry, an ideas industry. I tried to get him back on to Talking Politics for this episode so he could reflect on what a difference four years had made to his arguments. But he is in a lot of demand. He has been in huge demand since the start of the pandemic. And so he wasn't able to do it. I'm still hopeful that one day we'll get him back. But in his absence, I was thinking about some of the things that he said back then and whether they all still ring true. I think some of it has changed. In the original version of this interview, when we broadcast it in 2016, I introduced it by saying that many people I knew in a town like Cambridge, a tech town full of computer engineers who are designing the technology of the future, there is quite a lot of scepticism about the argument that machine intelligence is on the verge of exploding into something that will leave human intelligence behind. In the four years since, I would say, if anything, that scepticism has grown. So Yuval Harari seems pretty sold on the idea that we've already passed the point of no return, where machine intelligence, separated out from human consciousness, is simply going to explode exponentially, and human intelligence anchored to human consciousness won't be able to keep up. Well, in the four years since, there hasn't been a huge advance in machine intelligence. There have been some remarkable successes, particularly in the field of game playing, the kind of successes that have been achieved by computers playing Go and poker and chess to a level that no human being has ever imagined. But more broader triumphs of machine intelligence are actually quite hard to find. Machines are more and more a part of our lives they're integrated in our lives and in our consciousness. But they're not massively smarter than they were four years ago. They have hugely more capacity in some areas. 
and machine learning, or deep learning as it's called, has taken machines to places where human beings can't go simply because of scale and power and depth. That is, depth of data analysis. But depth of intelligence? That still seems quite remote. I'm not sure that the four years since we recorded that interview has settled the case, and if anything, I think there are even more reasons to doubt that machines can do some of the basic things that we associate with intelligence, at least that they're going to be able to do it soon. Machines still struggle with language. Machines still struggle with creative thought. Machines definitely still struggle with even the basics of what we would think of as human imagination. In 2020, it's not clear that machine intelligence is about to leave us behind. I also found myself thinking about an interview that we recorded on Talking Politics with Brett Frischman, talking about his book, Reengineering Humanity, in which he makes the case that we should be much more worried about unintelligent machines than intelligent machines. That is, the machines that are permeating our lives are not particularly smart. They often have extraordinary capacities in particular areas, but they're one-dimensional. They can do things that we can't, and they can do things much quicker than we can. But they can't do what's called general intelligence. And living in a world that's increasingly dominated by those narrow, specific, task-oriented machines, with their inability to process any form of complex language, is changing us. It's not that the machines are becoming smarter, it's that we possibly are becoming less intelligent as we adapt to a world in which those kinds of machines increasingly dominate our day-to-day lives. And that does seem to me still to be a serious risk, that before the machines become a lot smarter than us, we become a lot more like the less smart machines. There is a kind of assumption in what Harari was saying in that interview that we were also on the cusp of a sort of machine takeover of problem solving. That machines, because of their extraordinary capacities, their processing ability, were going to quite soon be able to solve problems that were beyond human capacity to solve, maybe including climate change, global problems, the sorts of problems that we think of as being essentially political could be taken out of the domain of politics and somehow annexed to and then resolved by the domain of machines. Over the last four years, that also seems, if anything, more remote, less likely. Climate change doesn't feel like A, it's close to being solved, or B, it's close to being solved by machines. Solutionism, that Silicon Valley doctrine, that political problems are resolvable if you can depoliticize them and mechanize them. A lot of people still believe it. A lot of people in Silicon Valley are absolutely sold on it. But the last four years have given us, I think, almost no evidence that it's coming anytime soon. I've never really believed in solutionism. I don't think I believed in it in 2016. I don't think I believe in it in 2020. One last reason why I think I'm possibly more sceptical now than I was four years ago. In that interview, we talk about human agency and Yuval Harari's conviction that the digital revolution and then what's about to follow spells a kind of death for human agency. 
because the liberal assumption about the individual and the capacity of the individual human being to make the crucial judgments, value judgments, judgments of conscience, that is about to be taken away by machines that lack conscience, that lack consciousness, and will make those decisions regardless of who we think we are as individuals. Human agency is about to lose out to a form of artificial agency. Well, I think that may be true, but I don't think it's true in the way that Harari believes. That is, we're not about to lose out our agency to the agency of AI machines. The most striking fact about the world now compared to four years ago for me is not the increased power of the machines. It's the increased power of the people and the corporations who build and own the machines. There is another threat to human agency, and that's the threat that comes from the agency that's possessed by corporations, vast, often monopolistic corporations, of almost unimaginable wealth and sometimes of unaccountable power. Are the machines that Jeff Bezos builds and owns more powerful than they were four years ago? Yes, absolutely, and he's made his money in part by moving out of the bookselling business and moving into the cloud business. But I think more striking than that is how much more powerful Jeff Bezos is than he was four years ago, how much richer, but above all, how much more powerful Amazon is than it was four years ago, how much more powerful Facebook is than it was four years ago. And by Facebook, I don't mean so much Facebook, the network. I don't mean Facebook, the technology. I mean Facebook, the corporation. This is something we've talked about quite a lot on Talking Politics over the last four years. And this problem still seems to me to be central. Human agency is not just under threat from machines. Human agency is also under threat, as it has been for hundreds of years, by the artificial agency of corporate power and indeed state power, those other kinds of machines that we built to make our world go better, and make our lives more convenient and safer, more prosperous. Those machines also have a kind of power that transcends what humans are capable of. And from 2016 to 2020, the power, the unaccountable power of corporations, the power, the supposedly accountable but in many ways unaccountable power of states, of Donald Trump's America, of Boris Johnson's Britain, of Xi Jinping's China. Those threats to human agency are not new. That is a story that is hundreds of years old. That story does not begin with the digital revolution. The digital revolution may have turbocharged what corporate agency does to human agency, but the digital revolution did not invent it. Having said all that, I was talking to my son, who's 21 years old recently, and he has just read Homo Deus for the first time. So he didn't read it in 2016. Before Donald Trump was president, he read it in 2020, in what may be the last year of Donald Trump's presidency. And he thought, he thinks, that it's a remarkably prescient book. One of the reasons that he thinks it's prescient is he'd also just been reading Dominic Cummings's blog, and in some of those blog posts, Cummings talks without referencing Harari, a kind of Harari language, about the coming of machines with the ability to do what he calls counterfactual thinking. The ability of machines, much more completely than human beings, 
to think of imagined scenarios and possible hypothetical alternatives to the world that we're now in, and to flesh them out. Cummings believed in that as a future, and that matters perhaps more even than Harari believing in it as a future, because Cummings has political power. And there is something to be said for the fact that Harari's vision of the future, whether you buy it or not, has been bought into by some very powerful political actors, not just tech giants in Silicon Valley. There is an increasing presence of Harari-style thinking about what machines can do if machines can be allowed free reign to speculate about the future inside government. And at the moment, for now at least, the British government is dominated by someone who thinks like that. So when my son read this book, he didn't think of robots. He thought of Dominic Cummings. And he also said to me, when I asked him what it was about this book that resonated with him, that it spoke to his generation, people say under the age of 25, that when Harari talks about the thought that the human race is coming to a kind of end state, that we should be thinking about what the end of the story of Homo sapiens looks like, if you're my age, that sounds like science fiction. And if you're my son's age, thinking about a life that may, for him, have 80, 100 more years in it, that's not science fiction. That's just the future. Thinking about whether human beings really are mortal in the way that they used to be, whether the lifespan, never mind life expectancy, but the shape of a human life is going to look anything like it did for people born in the 20th century, for people born deep into the 21st century. That's not science fiction for his generation. That, he says, is how he and his friends think. So four years maybe changes the way that I think about that interview with Harari and I think about Homo Deus, a book that I loved at the time and still love and still recommend. It's an amazing book and Harari is, among other things, a truly amazing writer. But at the risk of repeating myself, I'm increasingly aware that how people of my age respond to these things is so different to how people 30 years younger respond to these things. That four years for me maybe doesn't seem like a long time. But four years is a long time if you're 21. Over this summer, we will replay a few other of our past episodes, the ones that we think are definitely worth listening to again in 2020. But next week, we're going to be talking to Diane Coyle about the economics of the pandemic and what we've learned now that we're months in about the different ways that we value many things, including the different ways that we value different kinds of work. My name is David Runciman, and we've been talking politics. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. 
Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.